This is Robin, the producer of KRBN Internet News Talk Radio for Pearl Buck Center. Pearl Buck Center is a nonprofit offering people with various abilities the support that they need to achieve their goals within Lane County. If you enjoy working with people while enriching their lives and your own, come join their team. Pearl Buck Center is looking for creative thinkers that enjoy bringing ideas to life. No experience is necessary for some positions, so for more information and to apply, check out their website at www.pearlbuckcenter.com or give them a call at 541-484-4666. Thanks to you, our listeners, KRBN Internet News Talk Radio is growing and is now available on more stations such as Facebook Video, Player.fm, iTunes, Verbal, and now on Amazon Audible. KRBN Internet News Talk Radio currently does not receive any funding to bring you these programs. However, we do ask that you hit that like button and tell your friends to help this station grow. And thank you again for your support. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show. With your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Jay will be as momentarily as uh, three-day weekend kind of threw everybody off. So, no, I'm live on the air. So again, we're waiting for Jay to dial in. So, anyways, welcome to the show. Hope everybody had a safe Memorial Day weekend. And um, actually, people hope, hopefully will know what Memorial Day was all about. And, again, we're waiting for Jay to kind of dial in. He says that he never has an update. Yeah, we'll see about that. Anyways, it's Wednesday again. For those of you who forgot what day it was because of a three-day weekend. And let's see. He's saying no call yet. So, And good afternoon. Robin, did I miss the end of the intro? Okay, we're going to try it again, folks. Please stand by. I promise I won't stand. Now I'm on. <laughs> now you're on. There he is. We have our commissioner, yay, who is out mowing his lawn. Yes, yes, because having a three-day weekend gets me completely off my schedule. I forgot I had the radio show today. I didn't even do any promos on Facebook, so maybe we have an audience. Maybe we don't. But welcome to another edition of Student-Run Radio and the Bose Nose Show, where we come to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. With a completely unprepared host, not exactly dressed to be on camera, but um, that's the way it happens sometimes. But, you know, I I didn't want to skip doing the show once I realized I had spaced out that I was supposed to be doing a show because there's so much to talk about, and I'm hoping I can remember it all because I didn't write write down any notes. But um, it's been three weeks since we talked, 
in that time, uh, the, the first Wednesday, my wife had knee replacement surgery, total knee replacement surgery. So anyone that's gone through that or has had a spouse or close family member go through that understands that that is kind of the um, joint replacement from hell. Hips are a lot easier than knees. And uh, so I spent most of that week playing primary caregiver um, and still playing primary caregiver and driver now because I'm driving to and from physical therapy uh, down to Slocum there. And it's just, you know, it's amazing to me that you can go in the same day, you know, go in 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, 6.15, get your knee replaced. I mean, literally, they take a saw to your bone, chop off the end of one bone and, and shave another one down, put some metal parts in there, you know, put a little button, glue a little button on the back of your kneecap, you know, then they have to move all the tendons and ligaments out of the way and then put them all back, sew you up and send you home on the same day. Amazing piece of surgery. Those, and, and those guys are just like um, machines in a way because they have to be so um, careful and step by step and not miss a step and do everything so precise, you know, to get all the, you know, the pieces to match up and everything it's pretty impressive but going home same day but then then you're you're left with self-management of pain therapy and all that at home which was kind of interesting and then starting your own pt work at home um, physical therapy but for those folks that aren't acronym friendly um it's it's pretty interesting and it really uh opened your eyes up a little bit also, it just kind of makes you realize, you know, how difficult the world is for somebody that only has one good leg. <laughs> Little things I've noticed, you know, all these ADA things we did for these ramps. They, at first, they used to do these little um, lines cut in, in the walkways to, to warn blind people that you were getting to a roadway because that was the dangerous part about handicap ramps is blind people couldn't tell when they were entering a road. Well, that wasn't enough of a textural change. So they went to this thing where they have these raised circular, you know, bumps of concrete, you know, in a grid pattern on it. If you've ever tried to take a walker across that stuff, <laughs> it's an interesting thing, you know, with those little, you know, the little walker, hard walker wheels. Um, not an easy thing. So what helps the blind on one end is really not mobility friendly to somebody that's that's using a walker, like elderly people or people that just had their knee replaced. Fortunately, today is two weeks, and and this morning's physical therapy, Elizabeth was taught how to use trekking sticks, you know, those those walking sticks uh, that are like ski poles, and uh, is hopefully away from the walker for the most part. Um, the only bad thing about the trekking poles, though, is she can't carry anything in her hand, you know, where the walker, she had the ability to kind of carry stuff. So that's been my life partly. In addition to that, you know, we got the sad news a week after her, her surgery um, that her father had passed away. And I've talked about Linwood Lewis Davenport on the show before. Um, and he's an amazing person. And one of those people that defines the greatest generation, 
you know, if you, if you understand that term, you know, born into basically you know, in 1924 and, and ended up, you know, his first years of memory was the, the stock market crash and all that. But in 1933, when he was nine year, eight or nine years old, his father and almost all of his male adult male relatives were killed in a truck train crash on their way back from the tobacco market in eastern North Carolina, where his family farmed vegetables and grew a little bit of tobacco to, as a cash crop. And uh, you know, one of his uncles was driving the truck and tried to beat the train crossing and didn't make it and devastated his extended family. And uh, his mom tried to survive on the farm for a while, eventually just couldn't do it. And uh, somewhere about 1935, 36, moved the family to an orphanage where she had teaching credentials and got a job teaching at the orphanage school. But at that time, Linwood was 12 and considered to be too old to be part of the school and and be allowed to go to the school like the young his younger siblings. He was the oldest of seven kids, so he had to work the farm that was part of the orphanage in order to be allowed to go to the school. So he got up every morning and milked cows before he went to school at 12 years old. Can you imagine 12 year olds being told to do that nowadays? And then, you know, eventually he graduated high school at 17 and was immediately, you know, the day he graduated, received a notice, you know, your your friends and neighbors have selected you, you know, from the president or whatever it is to 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 be part of the service. You know, I forget the exact wording of those draft letters. Um, and his first trip out of eastern North Carolina the coastal plains of North Carolina was to go to get his medical for being inducted into the service. And he ended up getting drafted into the army and went into active service by the time he did his training and all that it was 1943 and was a replacement in the Texas, um, uh, what they refer to as the 36th Division, the T-Patch Division, after they had um, taken Salerno and taken heavy casualties in, in Salerno, Italy. And uh, that was the, the first uh, American foothold in the main part of Italy, not Sicily, not the island of Sicily, in the actual boot, so to speak. Uh, and... Uh, he came in uh, and basically, you know, his transport ship pulled up and there were so many sunken ships, German ships and Italian ships in the harbor, that they couldn't get to a dock and they had made a temporary walkway from sunken ship to sunken ship to sunken ship to get to shore that he had to walk across, um, was eventually um, trucked out to his unit where um, he basically spent the night in a tent and the next morning was part of the first assault of trying to cross the Rapido River at Casino. And if you're a fan of World War II history, people know that that was a horrible 
tactical error on the part of the American general that was running that that army, uh, and their unit got shot to to hell. Um, you know, he was part of an anti-tank regiment, and he said his, you know, his unit went down there in three trucks, three deuce and a half, as they call them, and two jeeps, and they all came back on one jeep. You can imagine how heavy the casualties were in his unit. Um, but he survived that. He also survived the breakout of Anzio, his unit was part of, uh, you know, they liberated uh, Velatria, which was the gateway into liberating Rome. Uh, then he uh, did D-Day Southern France. People don't realize there is more than one D-Day sometimes. Um, but the amphibious landing in Southern France, fought up through the Vosage Mountains and into, you know, was part of the Colmar Pocket and uh, ended up in Southern Germany, where his unit liberated one of the first concentration camps that was found in Germany. And in fact, it was such a new thing that Eisenhower actually came and toured the camp shortly after they liberated it. And as he told me, he saw Eisenhower crying because they literally had bodies stacked up in this camp like cordwood against the fence. And, uh, you know, he said it was very strange because when they came to the camp, you know, the, the guards had just left and left the, the gates unlocked, but the prisoners were still there because they were too weak to go anywhere, really. And the first thing the prisoners asked for was not food. It was cigarettes, which Linwood, because he didn't smoke and see rations came with him, always had a bunch that he used to use for trading. Um, so he had plenty of cigarettes to give out to the prisoners. That's not the end of the story. You know, he, he, you know, that courageous service, two bronze stars written up for a silver medal. The paperwork got lost in a military warehouse fire, so he really should have been a silver medal recipient too. Purple Heart. When he talks about it, he says, I just did what anyone else would have done. You know, it was his way of looking at his service. You know, everybody else did the same thing. You know, it wasn't anything special. It's like, oh, my gosh, it was incredibly special. And, uh, you know, very poignant Memorial Day for uh, Elizabeth and I with his recent passing. Uh, be thankful for those that, that served and have passed away um, because our freedoms to do a show like the Bose Nose Show are, are based on his service. But uh, digress a minute, you know, a little bit of personal background, why things are crazy, why I missed a couple shows, why am I calendars all off in my head because I, I'm somewhat sleep deprived from making sure, you know, medications are taken at certain times during the night and all that stuff. Other things we need to cover in the Bose Nose Show. But I just want to remind folks that this is a call-in show. And, um, you know, we appreciate people that call in because we'll talk about whatever they want to talk about. And all you have to do is dial 646 721 9887 and press one so we know you want to get on the conversation again that's 646-721-9887 just press one to get on the conversation and um, we have Sylvia on the line I believe that wants to talk about permits Sylvia welcome to the Bose Nose Show hello 
So, yeah, permits from the Holidays Farm Fire. I live up in Vida um, in what was declared part of the black zone. My neighborhood burned down completely. Um, our house survived. 23 houses around us burned. Our closest neighbor is now a mile away. And so I know a lot of people up here. We've lived up here almost 30 years. And I know a lot of people all the way up and down this burn zone that are, you know, all, pretty much all of them are waiting for permits still. And I'm just concerned that the county hasn't found a way to be more efficient, more, I guess, agreeable, whatever it is that's blocking it. I'm concerned about my residents, my neighbors, um, and I'm concerned about the county as a whole. If if we have another catastrophe and we haven't learned to deal with this one, you know, where we're headed. So I'm trying to find out if you know what the holdup is. Um, you know, one of them is just Oregon's Byzantine land use laws. Um, but, you know, it's kind of funny. It's, you might have, you know, I don't know if you were listening in or whatever, but um, I have a, a phone call with our county administrator um, regularly, and today was the day I had it. And I think I spent 45 of the 60 minutes of the phone call talking about how can we get our permits to be out faster and better? Um, you know, what what can we do? And we've authorized extra positions and extra help. Um, you know, we, we also authorized waiving permit fees up there for the fire victims, but it just, things aren't moving as fast as I want them to move or anybody wants them to move. And I was kind of to the point where I was asking, you know, we transferred people around um, to deal with COVID, you know, from other departments into doing things like contact tracing and, and other issues. Um, I'm like, at this point, who in public works has the capability to help review permits? You know, how can we make this work faster? You know, and I just, you know, we spent, you know, a good 45 minutes talking about that and trying to, to you know, make it work. Because I'm greatly disappointed in how slow the permits have gone. I'm also kind of disappointed in that there's a bill in the Oregon legislature that would shortcut a lot of the land use side of that permitting. Because one of the, the sad things is, is all those homes up there, you know, are outside of an urban growth boundary. And under Oregon's land use laws, you basically have to go back to square one and reprove that you had a legal lot to build on. Reprove that, you know, your your forced dwelling was is still a, a, uh, a, an okay use and get all these land use things done before you're even allowed to apply for a building permit. And then our building permit staff is just overwhelmed right now um, with the, the workload. So I'm really aware of the problems up there. I, I do know that, you know, there are some permits being issued. A friend of mine that, um, you know, has been working his way through finally called me and said, I got my permit, you know, and the, yeah, I think he'd been working for about three months to get his. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll get better, but I'm disappointed in the performance to date. I do know that um, 
you know, we're, we're hiring somebody specifically just to be like an ombudsman for people upriver and trying to navigate that, that land use system. Because if you're, if you're not a professional developer and haven't done a lot of development in, in, in rural areas, I, you, you know, we have, you know, a code that's, you know, inches thick of regulations about, you know, what you're allowed to build and not allowed to build in the various zones that are upriver, let alone account for things like floodplains and other, you know, riparian setbacks and other issues that you have to deal with. So um, I'm really sorry about all your neighbors and, and hope that they get their permits quickly. I will say that we are trying our hardest to, to get them out fast. And it's been top of my mind for quite a long time that it was going to be an issue. But there, there, I, I don't have the bill number in front of me right now, but there is a, a um, house bill that was going to basically waive the land use part of permitting for fire victims and let them go straight to building permits. If they had a house there before the fire, it was going to give people the automatic right to rebuild. And uh, I'm not sure where that bill is right now. I'd have to go look it up and check on it. But if that passes, that will greatly reduce the workload of our staff and have them be able to focus purely on the building permit side of things, not the land use side. So. Okay. Well, um, um, it clears it up some, but it's like, it is frustrating because I've, you know, my neighbors have to prove they had a house. <laughs> it's like, well, well, your picture's burned in a fire. I mean, Taxes should have been enough to prove that they were paying for a house on a piece of property at the location that the map showed. But yeah, I mean, I understand the bureaucracy. It's just um, you help clarify some of it, but it it doesn't solve the problem. So yeah, if that bill passes, that would help. Yeah, it's, it would help immensely. And and we are we are in the process of hiring people right now to try and add staff. To deal with this, so um, you know we authorized the hiring of the staff a while ago. It just takes a while to advertise, find people, and to, to be honest, you know we're not the only county trying to staff up to review building permits. You know, yeah. there are four thousand lost survivors. So we're now mm -hmm. in competition with you know Jackson County for the same people that are qualified to review building permits. You know. <laughs> So it's, it's yeah. Um, it's just, it's it's bad news, and, and um, I'm I'm hoping it gets better faster, and we find ways to maybe be a little bit more um, expedient and streamlined about this. Uh, and I just uh, it's it's probably one of my greatest frustrations right now as a commissioner. Um, my wife got to over, you know, I don't know if you heard me talking about her knee replacement. She got to overhear my phone call with the county administrator today, and she's like, wow, <laughs> a little fired up about that, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, so. thanks for clarifying. Thanks for doing your show. Yeah, well, it's, thank you for calling in. Thank you for listening. And, uh, you know, I, I really hope your neighbors get back in there quickly because I, I just know that the trauma involved in that is just, you know, people don't appreciate the, you know, and then just, 
right now hearing on the news that there's other fires and other people are being evacuated, you know, from some of these small grass fires that started down Douglas County and all, that's got to be so unsettling for people like you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I can't explain. I mean, yeah, you have to, it's not even just the evacuation. It's the coming back and your whole world has just, I mean, even with our house, everything around it disappeared. It's just not there. And it's very, horrifying and, and surreal all at the same time. And so um, it, it's, yeah, I, I really am concerned about this fire season, especially with this weather um, and people's complacency. All it takes is flicking a cigarette and suddenly a bunch of people may be homeless. So yeah, yeah well, we'll see. Yeah. I think the fire down in Elkton was somebody burning yard debris. You know, it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, Get smart people. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. It's just it's a shame. Um, but you know, we have enough bad natural fires. It's bad that humans have to cause so many in, in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, I agree. Yeah. Well, Sylvia, um, thank you for calling in, and really, um, all my best to you, and and hopefully we get people permits and you get neighbors again and eventually we'll get life back to normal, but it's going to be a marathon, not, not a sprint. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. See, and that's all you have to do on the Bose Nose show to uh, change the topic or take it where you want to go. Um, and, you know, I, I, have talked several times about my concerns over permits and and the fire victims. And I've also talked about the mistakes the county made in updating our floodplain ordinance to impact some of those fire victims in a negative way. But we we are trying really hard. Uh, We've got seven positions we're trying to hire for in the department that handles the building permits. You know, and this is on top of Everybody wants to build something now that's not a fire victim. You know, all you have to do is look at the price of, of, of lumber to understand how insane the housing market's gotten. Um, on top of now we've got fire victims that have to rebuild in the middle of one of the strongest housing markets there is so that they're not only fighting you know, prove they had a house in the first place, which seems to me to be ridiculous, but you have to do it. And one of the things I talked about early on was people need to, before they have the site cleared, survey in things like foundations and pilings and all that with a, with a land surveyor to prove, you know, so they can prove to the jurisdictions that they actually had a house there and where it was located. Um, and, and it's sad you have to do that, but it's it was something I recommended people do just to, to preserve their rights uh, to rebuild their homes. But, uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's going to be difficult for folks up there. Um, and I hope we get, you know, can take maybe some of this money flowing into the county right now from the um, America Recoveries um, uh, program, uh, ARP or whatever, I think that's the correct acronym for it, um, and maybe take some of those COVID 
emergency funds and, and see if we can help people out, you know, get back into housing faster in some ways. Particularly, you know, I'm really concerned um, about some of the people that were in some of the smaller, lower value homes and now are trying to rebuild in a corridor that was becoming a very desirable place for folks to live. It's beautiful, you know, up there. And um, the the price of, of, you know, whether they get priced out um, is a concern of mine. Get some, some moderately priced homes rebuilt up there uh, for those folks so they can move back and not be saddled with huge mortgages. But, you know, I had a couple other things I wanted to touch on today. Um, you know, one of one of which um, relates back to um, our last board meeting. And uh, as I think about it, it was in one of the strangest moments as a commissioner I've had. And that was, um, you know, we, at, at the request of, of one of the petitioners that had, you know, there's, statewide initiative petitions, there's citywide initiative petitions, and there's countywide initiative petitions. And when the pandemic struck, there were two petitions that had been approved to circulate for signatures in Lane County. Um, one of which was to change the voting system in Lane County to the star voting, um, which I'm not going to try and explain, but that was the one petition. The other petition was uh, to declare Lane County a Second Amendment sanctuary county, which is also a very strange thing because it's difficult for a subdivision of a political entity to declare itself a sanctuary from that political entity. <laughs> so not even sure it would be legal if it ever did get on the ballot and passed. Um, but those two were out for gathering signatures, and the pand pandemic came along. And you're not going to go knocking door to door when people were freaking out, you know, last a year ago, you know, got to think about a year ago. Um, or, you know, where were the, you know, fairs and markets and everything else people go to gather signatures? You know, it, it, was, it made it an impossible thing for somebody to successfully get the correct number of signatures in the time period allowed. So the petitioners asked for an extension of time to complete gathering signatures. Now that things are easing up, they might, you know, when people are vaccinated, now they can go door to door. Now that we're starting to have, you know, Lane County is going to have a county fair. All those things are starting to happen. So I put forward a very limited scope ordinance that would allow these two petitions to have a six-month extension on their signature gathering, which isn't a very long extension, and, and at the same time sunsetted so it wouldn't apply to any other new petitions that came along after this. So it was very tightly written. Um, we held a public hearing, got lots of supporting testimony for it, had one person uh, testify against it, um, but multiple, multiple people testified in 
um, support of it and got lots of emails in support of it. So it was somewhere in the range of, say, 40 to 1, maybe, um, testimony and support versus against. I made the motion to approve the ordinance, and nobody seconded it. Uh, and what was interesting is I know that Commissioner Farr, or Vice Chair Farr, supported it, but he was waiting to see if one of the other commissioners was going to second it because he thought they, that they might want to second it. Well, everybody sat there staring at each other, and eventually the motion was declared dead for lack of a second. Well, that basically means we have to start over again because that failure of somebody to to go ahead and second it. Really odd moment. But what was interesting was later in the meeting, when we tried to bring it up again, you know, according to Robert's rules, you really can't bring a motion that back up that dies for lack of a second, but we don't operate strictly under Robert's rules as a commission. So I asked for permission, um, you know, uh, to bring it up a second time. And once again, at least uh, Commissioner Farr gave his consent, but uh, Commissioner Buck uh, and um, and Commissioner Trigger failed to give consent. And at that point, Chair Bernie had left the meeting, so it was two to two on giving consent, so it stayed dead. And I and I'm scratching my head a little bit because. I always had heard over and over again, you know, at the county level, at least from people, that it was the conservatives that were trying to limit the rights of people for the initiative petition, mostly because there were a couple initiative petitions that failed to get on the ballot, not because of something that commissioners did, but because a judge determined they weren't legal. But for some reason, the commissioners got blamed about that. And at the time, it was a conservative majority on the board. So we were kept being told that, you know, conservative commissioners don't like the initiative petition. You're trying to suppress the people's rights to make law and, and all that good stuff. Well, here you have the two conservative-leaning commissioners that were willing to do whatever it took to try and help out these two initiative petitions that kind of got, you know, left hanging by COVID. And, and we've done other things, like um, we've, we've passed some ordinances that helped out the Oregon Country Fair uh, not go defunct because they couldn't hold a country fair because they're under a, a non-conforming use and, they, and a grandfather use. And if they don't use it once every 12 months, it goes away. And we actually had to pass an ordinance that allowed that, um, that time period to be longer. We did that for the country fair. Why not do it for these two initiative petitions? So I'm not sure, you know, why the the progressive folks didn't want to support the rights of citizens to make their own laws, but they did. So I kind of, you know, uh, I'm not sure if they didn't like to start voting. Pretty sure they didn't like the Second Amendment thing, but it shouldn't be about content. I don't. I, frankly, if star voting gets on the ballot, I'm voting against it. And I've told this chief petitioner that, but I was willing because it was fair and the right thing to do to extend their signature gathering. 
And, you know, that's just, you know, the way it should be. We, you know, we did it for the country fair. We've done it for Camp Lutherwood and other places that have non-conforming uses. Um, you know, why not do it for these initiative petitions? And recognize COVID, the emergency COVID was and what it was doing to people's rights to gather signatures. But Commissioner Farr and myself were willing to go there. But Commissioner Buck and Commissioner Traeger sat there stone-faced and, and would not raise their hand or make a second to help out these initiative petitions. So just wanted to make folks aware of that. It was a strange moment in our board meeting. And, you know, and stranger things yet, you know, as as we are getting further along with the COVID and, and we are less than 1% away from hitting our 65% magic number that the Queen has declared, but waving her magic scepter, as Bill London would say, um, what what's magical about 65%? I don't know, because we were all told it was 70% had to be for herd immunity, but 65% became the magic number to go to low risk. But as we're getting close to that, um, and as the CDC basically has given guidance that, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, you know, both shots in two weeks or the, the Johnson Johnson plus two weeks to getting the, the full immunities and all, you don't need to wear a mask. You don't need to socially distance from other people that have been. You know, so knowing that and knowing that all five county commissioners have been fully vaccinated. The staff that we deal with in board meetings has been fully vaccinated. I asked the question last, when are we going to start meeting in person again? And you thought I had just grown a third eye or something like that, or horns were sprouting out of my head. I got looks like meet in person Oh, my God, we can't do that. It's way too soon. And, uh, and it's just surprising to me because one of the difficult things we've had is public comment in a virtual environment is very strange. And we used to have, you know, we had evening public comment sessions where we would get a room full of people coming to us to do public comments in the evenings because they couldn't come during the day. In a virtual world, you'd think we'd have the same thing. No, we had several evening public comments where nobody showed up, or if we got one or two people, we were lucky since the pandemic started. So I was all for trying to get back to in-person meetings. Just like I believe we need to get back to a little bit more over-the-counter in-person services for a lot of our, our county services. But, you know, it's, it's difficult to move a unionized environment quickly is basically what I've found out. So we're still getting there and, and pretty soon there's actually going to be the ability to, you know, instead of, you know, pushing a building permit through a slot and hoping you've got everything they need and, and waiting, you know, weeks to get a phone call to say that you're missing a piece of the, of the permit information. Um, you'll actually maybe be able to come to a counter and submit it 
and have it checked, at least cursorily checked, as it's submitted. What a concept. You know, because we have offered all of our employees the ability to get vaccinated, not forcing them to, but the offer's been there and we've made it available at our work sites, multiple places. So, you know, if you want to be vaccinated, you can be vaccinated. If you don't want to be vaccinated, wear the mask, keep your social distancing, keep do your hygiene, all that stuff. Um, but it seems to me that uh, you can, Costco is starting to do food samples again. Everybody seems to be, you know, more willing to have a closer environment. Our, our case counts are dropping. And in fact, you know, they're dropping fast enough that Lane County is moving into the moderate range. We're hoping to hit that magic 65% here shortly. And uh, we're going to, you know, hopefully get moved into low risk because of that. And that, this is, this is something else I brought up in the board meeting. Besides trying to meet in person and start offering in-person services, one of the things I would like to see is for us or our state to stop trying to coerce people into getting the vaccine. What I ask for is we should be educating people on the dangers of COVID-19 exactly what the mortality rate's like, what the complications are if you do survive COVID-19, and, and just getting people to understand that. You know, this is a disease that no matter your age, if you get it, there's a 1% chance you're going to die. One in 100, that is pretty darn deadly. And if you're over a certain age, it jumps up to like one in five, you know, if you're elderly. And if you have certain complications and all that stuff, it's nothing to be made light of. It's not just the flu. It's killed, you know, thousands of Oregonians. It's killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans, millions probably worldwide. It's a serious disease. Flip side, we've vaccinated millions of people in this country. But we're hearing about, you know, six people that might have had a follow-up heart issue. Not sure it's tied to the vaccine, but there's a possibility. And people focus on that six out of millions instead of the one out of 100 that die from COVID-19. We need to educate people and, and allow them to make that choice based on that education understanding of risk. Now, yes, we haven't answered every risk question about the vaccine because it hasn't been around a long, long time. Neither has COVID-19 though, but we pretty well understand the mortality rate of it at this point. So, and, and yeah, everybody wants to talk about how the vaccine was given emergency authorization. Yes, that's because the FDA has such a long Byzantine process to give full authorization, the vaccine wouldn't be available for another three or four years. 
So that's why it was given that emergency authorization. It went through the first three phases of testing. It just hasn't finished the fourth phase, which is some of the longer term, larger studies that are required. Um, and it just, it, you know, it's, it's been proven pretty safe and effective. But just provide that information to the public and let the public make their own decisions. It's kind of like the governor deciding to veto the lane splitting for motorcycles. I mean, it only allowed motorcycles to go between cars at less than 10 mile an hour traffic, stop and go traffic, basically. And you don't have to do it as a motorcyclist. It's a choice whether you feel safe doing it. But Lord forbid this governor give anybody freedom of choice. Instead, she's weighed in on the side of trying to coerce people into getting the vaccination, which builds distrust. I, you know, no wonder people are wary of the vaccine when the governor basically says, I'm taking away your freedoms until you get vaccinated. I'm not going to let you have more than 25% of the capacity of your restaurants. I'm going to keep gyms basically shut down. I'm going to keep your movie theaters mostly empty. So they don't, you know, and, and I'm not going to let you have this event or that event until you get your vaccine. I'm taking away free, that have nothing to do with the spread of COVID. Still have yet to see a certified case of COVID being spread in a restaurant in Lane County. Yet that's where we're, we're, we're limiting people. So the one place I do know it's spreading is at home and unauthorized gatherings and stuff like that. Why are people having Because they can't go to a restaurant. Because the queen, our governor has decreed, you will get that vaccine or I'm going to withhold your freedoms. Coercion breeds distrust. Educate. Let people have their freedom to make their own decisions on risk. We're like the only state that's still doing some of this craziness. We're the laughing stock of the country as I talk to friends of mine and they hear about some of the stuff we're doing. It's insane. It needs to end. We need to actively lobby the governor and OHA and our legislature and OSHA and tell them they need to stop. People decide for themselves. Provide good information. And let people decide for themselves. I trust people to make decisions for themselves. I mean, what's next? Are we going to start outlawing anything that can be dangerous to protect people from themselves? Are we going to start taking away freedoms to force people to do certain things? Like, we're not going to let you um, eat in a restaurant unless you wear a helmet while you're riding your bike. Yeah, yeah. Where's this end? Where we start taking away freedoms and restricting businesses that have no impact and, and try and get you to do something to protect your own safety. And I think Robin's got an answer for that. <laughs> Not so much that, but getting back to 
uh, what you're saying about the governor. When all the commissioners decided to get together and businesses were saying that they were not going to abide, and then all of a sudden the coincidence about being vaccinated, uh, what type of feedback did you hear from that? Oh, yeah. It, it, it was fascinating to me to watch that that whiplash that she gave businesses. I'm putting everybody into the extreme, not just a high risk, but extreme risk where there's no indoor dining, where gyms are basically closed, theaters are closed, basically. And, and it's all because of our hospitalization rate, quote unquote. Well, she managed somehow or another after suddenly, you know, having her phone system crash because a certain commissioner asked for people to call her, hmm. having almost every commissioner across the state write her a letter along with the Oregon Restaurant Lodging Association, having all five Lane County commissioners write her a letter with all of the chambers of commerce signing along, basically saying, don't put us in extreme risk. We're not going into the same sort of situation that we were going into last fall, but she was that that's what she was telling us was going to happen and quote their quote models showed was going to happen. Remember that? Yeah. I wonder what happened to those models. <laughs> we don't hear much about the models anymore, do we? And sure enough, you know, after about five days, she basically reversed course and dropped the extreme risk because of the pressure I think she was getting, but she claimed it was because the hospitalizations dropped by this half percent or whatever it was. It was it was it was one of the most phony little pieces of statistical manipulation I've ever seen. And most people were like saw it for what it was was oops, I made a big mistake. And in those five days that we were in the extreme risk, you know, we weren't really having the growth in cases and hospitalizations that she thought we were going to. We all knew what was going to happen because during that time, we were pumping vaccines in arms like you couldn't believe. And, and it just, so she dropped the extreme risk. And then a few days later came the whole, I'll drop people to lower risk if you get up to 65%. <laughs> yeah. And I'll you a million dollars too. Yeah. Once more, it was all about, I'm taking away your freedoms unless you get vaccinated. You know. You're going to be on restrictions, Sonny. <laughs> you don't wash the dishes. <laughs> Please show your vaccination card so you can come in and sit in the no smoking area of the restaurant. Yeah. Oh, gosh. And don't get me started about the vaccination card stuff. <laughs> I, I just mentioned the whole idea of vaccine passports and having to show documentation. And uh, one of our fellow commissioners went off about being um, the a daughter of a Holocaust survivor and how she hates the comparisons that are being made and all that stuff. And it's like, I didn't say a word about Nazis or Holocaust or showing the papers or nothing. I just said, I didn't like the fact that we we're creating two classes of citizens where you're going to have to prove you're in one class to have certain freedoms. And, 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 Lo and behold, it you know, made us because you know what? I think she would support vaccine passports. Yeah, I'm pretty sure of it. If nothing else, some businesses have been saying, if you've been vaccinated, 
uh, your entry fee is five dollars if you're not vaccinated, and one hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, and you know, if it's a private business and it and they want to take the heat for that, all the power to them. What I don't want to have is governments telling private businesses, you you may allow people to do stuff if you check their papers. Yeah. And or you you know you have to give people discounts or you have to let people sit closer together if they prove this. Any mandates by government to the businesses, I'm against. And I'm also against any government asking people to show they've been vaccinated to get extra, you know to get special services, to be allowed to do certain things in a you know in a in a park in a you know, at a fair, any of that stuff, if it's government run, there should be no requirement to, to proof of vaccination. You know, everybody should be treated the same coming through the door. Because as a government, we cannot be discriminatory. As a private business, if you want to have certain, dis, you know, discretions, no shirts, no shoes, no service, no vaccine, no service, have at it. You may have repercussions to your business because of that. I imagine you may lose some customers, um, but you're doing that as private, with private property. You know, that's a different story. And you're not doing it for something arbitrary and, and truly discriminatory like skin color or religion or, you know, deciding whether customers are allowed in or not based on those bases is illegal but you know really when you think about it how far is vaccine status from you know as a as a pretty arbitrary way of determining people's uh status as as a business you're walking a very slippery slope there totally agree with that and i guess there's uh, severe penalties too if you try to fake that card yeah, but there are people faking it. I saw where a California bar was selling them for twenty bucks a piece or something like that. <laughs> by by the hundreds, apparently. I mean, how hard is it to fake that thing? I, I mine's around here somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's a little piece of cardboard. Everyone that's been vaccinated probably got one too. Yeah. I mean, it's a a Two-sided cardboard, you know, you can get this cardboard stock at Office Depot or whatever, whichever office store isn't bankrupt right now. I forget which one went bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) Office Max, maybe that was the one that went bankrupt. But, you know, you get the card stock, you know, pretty easy to develop a PDF or, or, you know, work this up in Word to look just like the card. Font's not some, you know, special font. Of course, you got to have a little bit of a font because you got to put the accents on the Spanish portion of it. Because of course, it has to be in two languages. Of course. And uh, you know, how hard is that to, to to reproduce and then just kind of fill it out yourself? I mean, they made me fill out the top part myself. Right. Right. And then all they did was write, you know, a batch number, a date stamp. You know, how many of those people have one of those, you know, things? Yeah. You know? That's pretty easy to forge, if you ask me. 
Remember the good old days when you used to forge your driver's license so you can get beer? Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> I remember when driver's licenses were paper, and they didn't have a photo on them. And my older brother, Chris, was kind of uh, small in stature, so we were the same height and and both with the same color hair, same color eyes, and all that stuff. <laughs> so, and and his draft card was paper too, and they had to reissue him a draft card or reissue him a license one time because they had a mistake. And there was a short period before that older license had had expired, and I had a had his had his draft card because he'd gone off to West Point for for college, so he didn't you know he didn't have to have his draft card. And it was pretty easy, even though I looked like I was 12, to buy a beer with a driver's license that said I was 18 and a draft card. <laughs> it does not mean exactly to that, folks, so there's no confession here. Yes, yes. Viewer <laughs> um, discretion of advice. Well, you know, what was funny was um, growing up in the Maryland suburbs of D.C., fairly close by, Maryland was 21 at that time for alcohol when I was about 16 and 17. I looked about 12, um, and uh, D.C. was 18 for beer and wine and 21 for liquor. So there are a lot of beer wine stores just over the D.C. line <laughs> where the teenagers would go to buy beer and wine a lot of times. So they were pretty loose about checking somewhat. But they, you know, I, the guy... The, the first time I used my brother's ID, the guy gave me the once over, asked me questions. What, you know, what was my birth date and asked me things that were on it. And, you know, looked the draft card up and down and finally sold me the beer. And I thought, yay. But I think I, think I used it like three times to do that before, the, before my brother's license expired. And I couldn't, couldn't get away with that anymore. Well, I hear the music in the background. Boy, we covered a broad variety of topics today. <laughs> so we'll be back next week with another edition of the Bose No Show. Although I, I should look at my calendar quickly because who knows? Um, I got to just double check, please. Hold on. Keep the music going. Oh, yes, I'm good for next week. <laughs> can't keep my, my, my calendar straight because physical therapy sometimes is on Tuesdays and Thursdays sometimes it's on Mondays and Wednesdays sometimes it's in the morning sometimes in the afternoon hopefully this time I'll remember to promo it I'll be here on time and we'll be back live from beautiful downtown Elmira have a great